even if you have that genetic risk, even if you were born with it, and even if it's something that you were given when you were born, and there's nothing you can do about that, the lifestyle that you live, the exercise that you perform, and your eating habits make such a profound difference on your risk for the development of prediabetes and type 2 and gestational that you can practically nullify the risk that you inherit by living an optimal lifestyle. And I do mean practically nullify, literally get rid of completely. You are listening to The Dr. Haley Show, the podcast dedicated to helping you optimize your health. Each episode, there will be an interview or a message to help you discover better health. We will be featuring health radicals on the show to bring new ideas to the table, as well as doubling down on key fundamentals to support you living your best life. Your host is no other than the founder of Haley Nutrition, Dr. Michael Haley. I'm Dr. Michael Haley, your show host for the Dr. Haley Show podcast. And today we have a brilliant guest, Dr. Cyrus Kambada, who out of necessity uncovered many facts and myths in many of our nutrition beliefs and teachings. For many, these truths will be difficult. I myself am going to have to reconsider many of my dietary choices and teachings. Cyrus is one of the authors of the New York Times bestseller, Mastering Diabetes. Dr. Cyrus Kambada, thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Dr. Haley. It's, uh, it's great to be with you here, and I've enjoyed our conversations leading up to this point, so let's, uh, let's make some positive change here. We're going to do that, and I got to tell you the truth, man. You're rocking my world here. <laughs> I'm confused. You're confused. Ta let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. What are you confused about? This is painful. Why? I'm reading your book, and it is excellent, and it's, I'm a science guy. I really rely on science, and there's a lot of research that has been done to justify a position that you're teaching that sounds like I've been wrong about a lot of things up to this point. Interesting. Yeah, and it's uncomfortable. I have to look at food very, very differently. I'm not going to give it away quite yet because, you know, we're throwing that out there for the audience. I want them to tune in. I know they're going to have the same problems and struggles that I'm having right now, changing the way I think about food and, and eat and all kinds of things. And I can tell you're a science guy too. Yeah. So I'm actually very glad to hear that there's a little bit of like either confusion or frustration or like annoyance that you're like, God damn it. Like I thought that was true, but now you're telling me that the opposite is true. How's that? How's that possible? I'm glad you're going through that process because here's the first thing. Number one, that book is not the ultimate source of truth. That book is, is designed to basically summarize over a hundred years of evidence-based research specifically about blood glucose control and food. Okay. That's the first thing. Secondarily, there's also a lot of personal experience, 20 years of my own personal experience, plus almost 20 years of Robbie's own personal experience put into that book. Plus, there's also the experience of thousands of our coaching clients that have gone through the Mastering Diabetes method, and we've learned a lot from them as well. So point being is that I want this to be a challenging process. Science 
should be challenging because it should always make you think that you don't know what you're talking about. And that's a, that's a mark of a good scientist who's like open-minded and willing to be like, you know what? Like I thought, I thought the world was flat and now you're telling me the world is round. What? How's that possible? Right. When we had spoke the other day, I mentioned a lot of people that influenced me to where I am right now. You know, people like uh, Dr. Joe Mercola and Gabriel Cousins and, and Sally Fallon with the Weston A. Price and, you know, Jordan Rubin and, and so many people that have different uh, positions, Mike Adams, the health ranger, and Brian Clement from Hippocrates Health Institute. And a lot of these nutrition experts, leaders in the field of health have different stories, different beliefs, and there is a lot of science mixed in, but there's a lot of still a lot of confusion. And we all have a very similar agreement on certain things like, you know, processed foods, bad, um, you know, organic whole foods better, you know, but within organic whole foods, there's a lot of confusion because we have animal foods and we have, you know, uh, raw vegan, we have cooked, we have, you know, there's all kinds of different takes on it. And some diets emphasize protein, some emphasize carbohydrates, some emphasize fats. Well, add to the list of people that influence me Dr. Cyrus Kambata, you're up there. You're in that list now of, wow, this is one of those people that really helped form who I am and what I believe and what I understand to be true. So I have to change some of the things, you know, people listening to me uh, have heard a lot. And I might have to uh, take some things back and reshape some of my beliefs and hopefully our audience's beliefs. Um, this is, this is going to be a great, great life-changing episode for a lot of people. Cool. I dig it. Um, one thing that I would say here is that one of the things that I've learned over in the, in the course of many years studying science is that, studying nutrition, I should say, is that if you apply this like good, better, best mentality to food, it's actually very helpful in giving you an idea as to like, what's a, you know, what's a reasonable strategy to like improve your overall health, right? So good, better, best basically means there's a good way to do things, there's a better way to do things, and then there's the best way to do things, or, or there's the optimal way to do things, right? And the position that I come from and the position that we come from, and maybe this is why it's slightly different than other health experts, is because I'm always trying to accomplish two things simultaneously. Number one, I want you to eat in a way that's going to improve your short-term health. And what I mean by that is I want you to find, I want you to employ the principles that we've outlined in our book that help you get better blood glucose control, lower your A1C value, lose weight if you are overweight, or get you closer to your ideal body weight, help you gain energy, help you gain mental clarity, and improve your overall cognitive ability, Okay. All of that is like short-term stuff that you can measure literally within hours or days. In addition to that, I also want to teach you how to improve your nutrition so that 30 years into the future, your long-term health is optimized, okay? So what that means is that I don't want you to make decisions that are going to improve your short-term health today and give you the impression that you're getting healthier, even though 30 years into the future, your chronic disease risk is higher and your risk for diabetes and cancer and heart disease is higher. 
That's not good enough. What I want to do is try and teach you a way where you can improve your short-term health and improve your long-term health such that you can go to sleep at night knowing with a high degree of certainty that what you're doing is not only making you feel better right here and right now, but that 30 years into the future, your risk for cancer has gone down and your risk for prediabetes and type 2 diabetes has gone down and your vasculature is in a significantly improved place. And so much of what I see in the world of health is short-term only. It's literally about losing weight quickly and dropping your A1C quickly and lowering your blood glucose quickly. And it's not designed to improve your long-term health and it's certainly not designed to help you live a longer period of time or improve your longevity, right? So if you always think about decisions as basically being, I want the short-term benefits and I want the long-term benefits, then it becomes more clear as to why we wrote Mastering Diabetes because it's both the short-term and the long-term strategy at the exact same time. Yeah, that's a beautiful thing. And I, I completely understand what you're saying because if you lower those numbers in short-term, you might feel great and think you're on the right path. But you know, you might find your need for medications, insulin going up, up, up gradually over time and leading to more chronic disease and other problems associated with diabetes or cardiovascular disease. Tell, tell us your story. What brought you to this point where you said, you know, I have to learn how, how to control my sugar levels and, you know, eventually write a book about it. Okay. Great, great question. So I was diagnosed actually with uh, three autoimmune conditions when I was 22 years old. So I was, it was the year 2002. I was a senior at Stanford University and I was just trying to graduate and move on with my life. I was studying mechanical engineering and I was, uh, you know, literally in my like second to last, you know, semester of college. So I started to feel really ill. And when I say ill, I mean, I was so thirsty. It was like mind boggling. I would drink, you know, between a gallon and two gallons of water per day. And every single sip, I got thirstier. In addition to that, I couldn't sleep very well. I was like very restless. In addition to that, I was urinating every 30 minutes like clockwork. In addition to that, when I would go to sleep, my muscles would cramp so tightly that it felt like I was in full body rigor mortis sometimes where my left breast muscle or chest muscle was, was cramped. And then some of my abs were cramped and then my right calf was cramped and then my left butt cheek was cramped. And before I knew it, I was like, this is terrible. I don't know what's going on. So I picked up the phone. I called my sister, who's a doctor of osteopathy. She's a family practice doctor and she's brilliant. And I said, Shanaz, can you explain to me what all these symptoms are? Like, what, what did I do to myself? And she started crying immediately. She said, Cyrus, go straight to the health center. You're giving me the symptoms of type 1 diabetes. Like, do not mess around. Go right away. So I followed her advice. I went to the health center and they, died, they, they um, measured my blood glucose. While I was there, my blood glucose came in at over 600. Okay, blood glucose is supposed to be between about 70 and 130 all day long every day. So if I were to check your blood glucose at any moment in time, whether you're sleeping, whether you're in the middle of exercise, whether you just ate a meal, your blood glucose would probably be between 70 and 130 because you're non-diabetic and we want to keep you that way. My glucose was six times higher than it had to be, than it needed to be, and six times higher than that range. So they immediately took me to the hospital. They, they gave me a IV in one arm and then a drip irrigation of insulin in the other arm, and they, they tried to lower my blood glucose using insulin. And then they explained to me over the course of the next 24 hours that I had three autoimmune conditions. Number one, I just got diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. So sorry to hear that, but that's the truth. Number two, I also had Hashimoto's hypothyroidism, 
which had developed over the course of the previous six months. And then number three, I also had alopecia universalis, which is just a fancy scientific way of describing why my hair was falling out. Literally, my hair was falling out in chunks in my head and on my chest and on my legs. And I now, you know, for people who can see this, I, I have no hair. I have no eyebrows, eyelashes, nothing. I literally have not a single hair on my body. It's an autoimmune condition. All three of them set in within six months. And I was like, what the heck happened to me? I don't understand. So the doctors at that time told me that they don't know how to treat Hashimoto's hypothyroidism other than using levothyroxine or Synthroid, which is a, you know, a prescription medication. Number two, no idea how to treat alopecia. There's really like no known intervention that will actually regrow your hair. Number three, but for type one diabetes, you can eat a low carbohydrate diet because if you do, number one, your glucose will stay more controllable. And number two, you can prevent yourself from using more insulin into the future. So I was like, okay, I think I'll do the low carbohydrate thing. So for the next year of my life, I started eating things like red meat, white meat, turkey burgers, quote unquote, lean meat. I had eggs, I had cheese, I was eating dairy products, I had some oil in my diet, but I was trying to avoid all the carbohydrate rich foods like fruits and potatoes and breads and pastas and cereals. And it was supposed to keep my blood glucose controllable, but it did the exact opposite. My blood glucose was a disaster, it was a roller coaster, it was all over the place. And my insulin use started creeping up, started at 25 units per day, went to 20, 29, 32, 36, 39, 42. Sometimes I was using 55 units of insulin a day, even though my carbohydrate intake was super low. So I knew that there was a problem. So long story short, I ended up learning that there was an alternative way of eating, which was this thing called a plant-based diet. So under the guidance of a nutrition pro, his name is Dr. Doug Graham, he took me under his wing and said, listen, I'm going to show you how to switch over and eat a fully plant-based diet. And in the process, you're going you're gonna to lower your fat intake and effectively eat more carbohydrate at the expense of less fat. And I was like, cool, I'm in, let's do it. I was expecting my blood glucose to go through the roof because that's the story that everybody else had told me, that carbohydrates are bad for you. And when you eat carbohydrates, all of a sudden your glucose is going to go out of control. But when I did what he said, I went from eating 100 grams of carbohydrate per day to 600 grams of carbohydrate per day. That's amazing. And my, it was ridiculous. And my blood glucose came down dramatically, which then lowered my insulin use by 40% in one week. Okay, if we got to pause right here for a second. Make sure the audience gets this. It's time for a happy dance, okay? <laughs> More carbohydrates. Carbohydrates are possibly a good thing, right? What, what does that not mean, though? What does that not mean? What, what do you mean by that? Well, what kind of carbohydrates? Hmm. Obviously, don't get do too happy of a dance and think, "Hey, you know, let's go get that that pie, that cake, that ice cream." Right? Very good question. So, the type of carbohydrate that I was eating at that time, the type of carbohydrate that has also been extensively studied through, uh, you know, scientific research dating back to the 1920s, as well as very sophisticated modern research methods is whole carbohydrate energy, okay? There's, I, I, want, I want people to sort of think about carbohydrates as coming from like two, two main sources, right? There's either edible and inedible carbohydrates or there's another way to think about it which is more um, accurate is that there's whole carbohydrates and refined carbohydrates, okay? So carbohydrates are effectively just a class of molecule that is found very abundantly in nature. 
Okay, carbohydrates are found all over the place. You find carbohydrates in potatoes, and it's stored in the form of starch. You find carbohydrates inside of fruits, and it's stored in the form of what, what biologists refer to as free sugar. Okay? You also find carbohydrates in an inedible format in many other parts of nature, including things like wood. Okay? Tree bark, wood, contains carbohydrate energy doesn't mean that you and I can eat it. Okay? You also find the single most abundant molecule in all of nature is a carbohydrate, and it is called fiber or cellulose. Okay? And that fiber is all over the place. I mean, it's in grass, it's in leaves, it's in twigs, it's in fruits, it's in vegetables, it's in stems, it's everywhere. Okay? Fiber is like the rebar of nature that gives plants structure. And humans actually can't digest fiber, but we have microbi uh, uh, trillions of bacteria inside of our microbiome that can, and that's part of the reason why they're so beneficial for us. So long story short, there's whole carbohydrate and refined carbohydrate. Whole carbohydrates come from basically four main classes of foods. Fruits, uh, starchy vegetables, legumes, and whole grains. Those are the sort of four whole carbohydrate-rich foods that we recommend. Then you have a whole collection of refined carbohydrates that come from things like cookies, crackers, breads, chips, pastas, soda, sugar-sweetened beverages, refined sweeteners, and the list goes on. So the type of carbohydrate that science has discovered over the course of many years to be very beneficial and optimal for human health is the whole carbohydrate. It doesn't take a leap of faith to understand that. But the more natural the carbohydrate quality is, the closer it is to nature, the less cooked it is, the better it is for you as a human being. The more processed it is, the more steps it had to go through in order to go from being on a plant to on your plate, the less healthful it is for you. So the more milling and cracking and grinding and dehydrating and processing and extruding that it, that, that that a food has to go through in order to become an edible product, the less its nutrient value, the less its micronutrient value. And you end up with something that, yes, is carbohydrate rich, but is also very nutrient poor and it can become inflammatory and, and increase your risk for chronic disease. Does that make sense? Um, sure, it sure does. And, you know, I, I think that, I think I was, the timing for your book was right for me. I've been hearing enough from people like, um, well, Patrick Vickers with the Gerson therapy, who helps people overcome cancer through diet. And people like um, Chris Work from crispycancer.com. He teaches people uh, to eat things like carrots and, and whole fruits and things that, you know, uh, Patrick Vickers, I remember him talking about the baked potato and how it was good energy and your body needs that energy to fight cancer, to defeat cancer, which was already contrary to everything I had been taught up to that point, you know, when it comes to, okay, wait a second, isn't the, the white potato a bad thing? Now, here's the good news. And for people listening, I love white potatoes and I felt guilty. I would boil them, keep them in my refrigerator and every now and then reach in and eat one like an apple. And I'd try to limit my intake of them thinking they were bad for me. And what I'm finding out that could actually be some really good, powerful energy and nutrition to carry me through the day. I 
love bananas. Always got them there. And I try to limit, I, I want to eat three or four, or sometimes more in one sitting. And I felt guilty, but I'm thinking I'm, I'm understanding that I'm not doing such a terrible thing when I eat those foods. I love mangoes. I love papayas. We grow them all over in our yard and stuff. And, and can I just eat one after another? You, you absolutely can. You absolutely can. And I'm, I'm actually glad to hear you like going through this process internally because so much of the information that we are provided with on social media and on Google and on WebMD and on Instagram and on YouTube is all about avoiding things like white potatoes. White potatoes are bad for you. Don't eat white potatoes because it will just turn into this thing called sugar and sugar will increase your blood sugar, which will make you more diabetic and it'll make you fat. So don't do that, right? And the problem with that methodology is in general, okay, the, the foods that are considered like white, like white table sugar, don't eat that stuff. That stuff is, is napalm. Absolutely not. Okay, white bread, again, that is a highly processed carbohydrate-rich food that we just talked about is like has no place in the human diet. So, of, of course, eliminate that. But a white potato should not be in that category by any stretch of the imagination because a white potato is a whole carbohydrate that even though it has a pale color does not mean that it's inflammatory or that it's going to make you fat or going to increase your blood glucose, okay? That's just a fallacy. So to answer your question... Could you, should you eat a lot of those foods? The answer is absolutely. The people who eat the most fruit, starchy vegetables, legumes, and whole grains. The people who eat the most fruit, starchy vegetables, legumes, and whole grains have the most exceptional health. And we see this in the scientific literature over and over and over again. They've done studies on individuals, either in you know isolated metabolic wards or they've done epidemiological studies on large numbers of people over large periods of time and have discovered the exact same thing, which is that the more starchy vegetables, fruits, legumes, and whole grains you consume, the more likely you are to achieve your ideal body weight, the more normal, quote unquote normal, your biomarkers become, the lower your cholesterol, the lower your blood pressure, the lower your A1C, the lower your fasting blood glucose, the lower your C-reactive protein, and the list goes on. So if you enjoy those foods, then please, my friend, eat them in abundance and eat them as much as you want because the more you do that, the more likely you are to achieve optimal short-term and long-term health at the same time. Oh, yeah. That's awesome. Uh, wonderful to hear. And in the past couple of days, I've been in, enjoying a food that I haven't had in a while. You know, we, we uh, filled up our dehydrator with bananas and apples and had, you know, banana chips and and apple chips. And I would imagine those are still considered whole foods. That's minorly processed, maybe not the fresh apple right out of the fridge, but probably still pretty good for you. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you're basically just taking the apple, cutting it and then dehydrating it, correct? Oh yeah. hundred percent. So yeah. Did it go through a manufacturing process? No, technically not. You just effectively like lightly cooked it hundred percent whole at that point. Right. So go for it. As a thank you for listening to the Dr. Haley Show podcast now through the end of February 2022 at HaleyNutrition.com, use the coupon code 241, aka two for one. Just those three numbers. That's the coupon code because when you have two single canisters of Aya Greens vegetable and fruit powder or Haley Pro vegan protein in your cart, the second one is free. 
241 is the BOGO. Buy one, get one. So go to Haley Nutrition now and put either two greens or two proteins or one of each. They're normally $49.95, but today you can get two for the price of one. And taking a vegetable and fruit powder every day is the fastest way to improve your nutrition. Having a scoop of protein with your greens turns it into the perfect meal replacement. If you're seeing this or hearing this after the coupon has expired, head over to the podcast channel, listen to a more current episode for a more current coupon. One of the benefits of being a fan. And now, back to the show. Now, I'm about a a week into modifying my diet a little bit. And what I have been personally decreasing, haven't eliminated 100%. I I don't don't know if I will be able to. We'll see how this goes. And I, you know, my audience knows that I've always differentiated between, um, you know, healthy animal foods and conventional animal foods. But I'm understanding that I might have to change my thinking in that area. And my audience knows I've never, you know, it's been small animal amounts of animal foods. What do I do with that? Are they still needed or do I got to throw them out the window? Okay. That was a great question, actually. I think the word need is actually the key word in your, in your question here, right? Do you need to have animal products in your diet in order to uh, optimize your short-term or long-term health? That's, that's the main question that you're asking. And animal products for clarity include either red meat, white meat, fish, poultry, eggs, or dairy products, okay? Um, and then I maybe we throw in like organ meat as well, okay? The answer is, do you need any of those foods or some combination of those foods in order to live an optimal life? The answer is absolutely not. And again, we know this not only from you know personal experience and from working with other people, we know this from scientific research. This is like, this is a... Uh, this, this, this concept shouldn't be debated anymore. It really shouldn't be debated. But unfortunately, it still is because everybody wants to have their opinion. All right. But if you did incorporate some animal products into your diet, does that mean that you are doing yourself a disservice and that you're going to dramatically increase your chronic disease risk and, you know, uh, die at a younger age? And the answer is it depends on how much you consume. Okay, so the general consensus within the scientific community of nutrition experts who really understand the distinction between plant-based meals and animal-based meals, the general consensus in this community now is that the more plant material, the better. But there is, there's, there's not necessarily a consensus on whether or not eating 100% plant-based is better than having a small amount of animal products in your diet. Okay, so it becomes really hard to tell from a scientific perspective whether or not you having like, yeah, I don't know, call it 10% of your calories from animal foods versus 0% of your calories from animal foods, if that makes that much of a difference, right? So if you have a couple of servings of meat and or dairy products in your diet on a weekly basis and you just really enjoy eating those foods and you don't want to get rid of them and or you know feel junky if you got rid of them, I would say don't stress about it. Right. If you want to become fully plant-based, go for it. You know, I'm all about that. But um, there's a main, there's a big difference between eating approximately 10% of your calories 
you know, from animal products, which again, the scientific community uh, would generally consider to be a very healthy diet versus eating 40% of your calories from animal-based foods, which uh, the scientific community generally agrees is going to likely increase your risk for chronic disease. Yeah. And uh, I think my audience knows that uh, they've been listening enough to know that big salads, including all kinds of, you know, from, and I, I like steamed uh, vegetables on my salad. You know, I, I just prefer them, but whether you're having raw carrots or steamed or, you know, cucumbers and, and beets, and, you know, there's so many delicious foods that have in a salad that aren't animal foods. For me, when I consume some animal foods, I feel more satisfied. Um, I, I'm not returning to the kitchen so quickly. And I, I think that's probably what, why I crave them personally. I've all, you know, we have to cross over because type one diabetes create, uh, there's an immune component involved in this. Yes. An autoimmune component. Absolutely. Yep, possibly yep. related to some kind of inflammatory leaky gut. Do you think that's why you got type one diabetes to begin with? Yeah, that's a great question. So, uh, okay, let's back up here. Type and, one and, the re and the reason I'm asking is because I've, I have had a challenge helping people heal from their inflammatory bowels apart from things like bone stock or some animal foods. So that's, that's why I need some clarity here. Got it. Okay. 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 So really what you're asking basically is that if somebody has an inflamed digestive system, mainly pertaining to their large intestine, whether it's IBS or IBD, or it could be something like SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, or it could be this general term called dysbiosis. Those individuals often report that when they consume fiber-rich foods, just like we're suge what I'm suggesting are, are actually optimal, that if they were to increase their intake of fiber-rich foods, good luck, game over, drive home safely. It's too hard. It causes more gas, more bloating, more constipation, abdominal pain, and is, is very uncomfortable. And there's a biological reason for that. Okay. In an inflamed state, when your large intestine is, is currently experiencing a significant amount of inflammation, the microbiome is in an altered state, which makes it very challenging to process small amounts of fiber as, and especially large amounts of fiber. So in order to get to the goal of increasing your fiber intake and maximizing your fiber intake, you have to go through a stepwise process where generally speaking, oftentimes people benefit from lowering their fiber intake to begin with. And then slowly, and I mean painstakingly slowly, increasing not only the total amount of fiber, but the diversity of fiber inside of your diet as well. And as a result of that, over the course of time, they can regain the ability to digest fiber and regain the ability to, uh, you know, eat a large proportion of their diet in plant foods, okay? But if we go back to the original question here about type 1 diabetes having an immune component, the answer is yes. Both type 1 and type 1.5 diabetes have, are, are, are considered autoimmune conditions. So autoimmune is just a fancy scientific way of saying your own immune system has effectively, like, turned on itself. Your own immune system is now creating a destructive process in some tissue or some collection of tissues. So type 1 and 1.5 diabetes is an autoimmune process in which your own immune system actually 
causes beta cell death. It causes beta cell, what's called apoptosis or beta cell suicide. And the beta cells are the very highly specialized cells inside of your pancreas that are responsible for secreting insulin. They're the only cell type in your entire body that can make insulin. And when they're gone, they're gone. They're not coming back. So sacrificing that population is a very, very, very costly decision because there's no other cell type in your body that can manufacture insulin. And so if you have an autoimmune process that has compromised those beta cells, now you have to rely on exogenous insulin, which is insulin that comes from the outside world, that either comes from a vial or an insulin pump or something of the like, okay? So autoimmune conditions, like why do they start in the first place? Well, there's a whole host of reasons why autoimmune conditions are likely to start. It depends. I mean, the, the, if you go on to Wikipedia and you take a look at like how many autoimmune conditions exist, I mean, there are hundreds of autoimmune conditions and most of them have unbelievably complicated names and unbelievably complicated pathology. And scientists don't really understand that much about autoimmunity in general. So some of them are so sophisticated that like the scientific community is sort of like, well, I don't really know. I don't really know, right? When it comes to type 1 diabetes, there's, there's actually some evidence that there's a couple of things that could increase your risk for type 1 diabetes. Or, or type 1 and 1.5. Number one, the, the consumption of uh, cow's milk protein at a very young age, okay? So in an ideal world, a child who uh, you know, is a newborn infant would receive pretty much 100% breast milk, and then they would be breastfed for approximately a year, maybe even a little bit longer than a year. And part of that reason is so the mom can transfer the, you know, part of her immune system and give the, the baby antibodies. But in addition to that, there's also a whole collection of uh, you know, fatty acids and carbohydrate and protein, which is transferred to the baby to serve as its optimal form of nutrition. Now, sometimes mothers have a difficult time breastfeeding. Sometimes they don't produce enough milk. Sometimes it's painful for them. Sometimes they're just tired. Uh, and as a result of that, many mothers tr transition their kids to formula. And the formula, if you actually read the ingredients on the, on the back of a formula, it's a bunch of processed stuff, right? They're trying to give the baby sort of a, a macronutrient and micronutrient distribution that's similar to what the mom's breast milk would have, would have been. But it, I mean, if you look at the actual ingredients in there, it's a, lot of, uh, it's a lot of refined products and it doesn't really have a, you know, it's, it's not an optimal, you know, form of nutrition for the child. Point being is that when you transition some kids, when you transition children to formula from a young age and they no longer receive breast milk, that can dramatically increase the risk for the development of type 1 diabetes, not right there, but years into the future. We're talking 5, 10, 15 years into the future. to your immune system to make part an immune process that can then progress over the course of time and then actually manifest itself years into the future. In addition to that, there's one other thing that can cause an autoimmune condition, or there's, there's two other things. Number one, viral uh, susceptibility. There's one virus called the Coxsackie virus, and the Coxsackie virus has a pretty close relationship. When you get the Coxsackie virus, you can dramatically increase your risk for the development of type 1. And scientists know this. And then in addition to that, there's also another bacteria that's been identified called MAP, which is Mycobacterium avium paratuberculosis. Don't remember that. Point being is that that's a bacteria that is found inside of the digestive system of uh, land grazing animals, particularly domesticated livestock. And some of those animals develop a condition called Yohn's disease. Yohn's disease is where the MAP bacteria infects their gut. Those animals defecate or poop on the soil that 
you know, the bacteria is present inside of their poop. It gets onto the workers' gloves and boots. And then when they're packing the meat inside of the, inside of the, uh, you know, the slaughterhouse, that bacteria can get inside of the meat and the dairy products. It goes to the grocery store. It can escape pasteurization. Before you know it, now you have live MAP in your fridge. And then when you consume that MAP, it can, it can increase your risk for specifically the destruction of beta cells, right? So, Yeah, and I know that you're not just making this up. Uh, you had written about it and, you know, there were samples that were actually taking from the stores and tested for this particular bacteria. And there was a certain percentage of, you know, all dairy products or meat products that had this in it. And it was kind of a shocking percentage. Like, you know, it may have been, and I, I forget the numbers, but maybe it was 11% of all dairy. Wait a second. Okay. So, you know, if I, if I had dairy from 10 different sources in my lifetime, I probably, one of them probably had it, you know, so I'm already exposing myself to these things. Well, it's pasteurized. No, these things actually were tested in pasteurized products and they found them still. Yeah. And, and what's another really uh, powerful statistic here is I'm reading from our book on page, uh, I don't know, 91. The connection between MAP and type 1 diabetes is so strong that a recent review of current scientific literature showed that 100% of human studies analyzed detected the presence of MAP bacteria in people who are living with type 1 diabetes. So that doesn't, that doesn't necessarily mean that if you are exposed to MAP, you will develop type 1, but it's showing that people who have type 1, 100% of them have the MAP bacteria, right? So that's cause for, you know, investigation. Absolutely. You know, I'm finding this to be absolutely fascinating. It's, it's completely changing the way I think about food. Um, I'm enjoying food more now because I was saying no to things that I loved that were actually good for me. And I probably knew they were good all along, but because I heard or read differently, <laughs> I put them away. Yeah, right. Exactly. Or decreased them. I thought I was doing bad. I, um, how much does genetics play a role? How much does genetics play a role in, in what? The development of type 1 or type 2 diabetes? Well, you know, maybe we should differentiate between them a little bit too, because you had mentioned type 1, type 1.5, type 2. There's how many kinds of diabetes and yeah, great question. Does, which, which ones are susceptible to genetics? Okay. Uh, so just like we talked about, type 1 and 1.5 are, are autoimmune conditions, but they do have a strong genetic component. So what that means is that if your your mother, your brother, your sister, your cousin, your aunt, your grandfather, if it's if it's within your family lineage, then your chances of developing type one are probably a little bit higher than the general population. All right. Secondarily, there's pre-diabetes, type two diabetes, and gestational diabetes. Pre-diabetes affects the largest proportion of the population. Let me give you a ridiculous statistic. In the world, in the, in the United States right now. There are 85 million people approximately who are living with prediabetes. Most of them don't even know, okay? 85 million out of 350 million people. That is almost one in three, okay? That's like one, let's call it one in four. That's 25% of the, di of, of the, of the U.S. population has prediabetes. That is an absurdly large number, Right? And then if you don't treat prediabetes, you can go on to develop type 2 diabetes. And then if you're pregnant, you can develop gestational diabetes. So the question is, are those three conditions related to each other and are they genetic? And the answer is yes and no. There is a genetic component. 
okay? Scientists have discovered that there are specific genes. There's a whole list of genes that show a connection to the development of blood glucose, uh, you know, irregularity. And you can go down the list and you can say, okay, what about, what happens if there's a mutation in this gene? What happens if there's a mutation in this gene? And yes, that can confer an increased risk for the development of prediabetes type 2 or gestational diabetes. But what I want people to understand is that even if you have that genetic risk, even if you were born with it, and even if it's something that you were, you were given when you were born, and there's nothing you can do about that, the lifestyle that you live, the food you consume, the exercise that you perform, and your eating habits make such a profound difference on your, your risk for the development of prediabetes and type 2 and gestational that you can practically nullify the risk that you inherit by living an optimal lifestyle. And I, and I do mean practically nullify, literally get rid of completely, right? So if you eat an, a plant-based diet the way that we describe, and it's low in saturated fat in particular, and it's, uh, it's unprocessed plant material, and you get approximately 30 minutes of exercise on a daily basis, and you are close to your ideal body weight, you put all these, uh, you know, these, uh, this program into play, then even if you have multiple genes that can increase your risk for prediabetes and type 2 and gestational, it doesn't necessarily matter because the gene expression or the, you know, the, those genes sort of effectively turning on and creating a blood glucose irregularity goes, gets shut off. And as a result of that, you don't express those genes. And by not expressing those genes, you're literally just carrying the information, but it doesn't translate into an actual disease, if that makes sense. There's hope for 85 million people. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the thing though, like that population needs to, has to change their lifestyle in order to see change. And, you know, just saying like, oh, my grandmother had type 2 diabetes or my dad had type 2 diabetes, I'm going to get it, is unfortunately, it is an, it is an excuse. It is an excuse and it doesn't, it doesn't match with the scientific, with, the, with, with scientific knowledge. Yeah. And, you know, there's a, there is a lot to learn and understand and uh, people get the book, read it. It's more than we can cover here. Uh, but in Mastering Diabetes, uh, you talk about, you know, fatty acids and how they affect your uh, insulin sensitivity. And, and um, it just makes sense. You know, yeah. people have something they can do about it. Now, in your case, let's go back to, to type one. And I know you already gave the answer away, but in case people didn't read between the lines on that, there's certain cells that die that produce insulin. And you already said you're never getting those back, but it doesn't mean they're all dead. You still have some cells that are doing their job. And in your personal story, you had already mentioned that you had a, an insulin requirement from the start. Where have you started? Where are you now? And what can you expect going forward for yourself with type one? Great question. So at the beginning of the process, 2002, my insulin requirements were approximately 25 units per day. Okay. And that's a combination of what's called basal and bolus insulin together. So it's like background insulin plus mealtime insulin. Okay. So 25 units per day. I ate a low carbohydrate diet. My, my insulin requirements actually went up, which is, I don't know, maybe I suck at eating a low carbohydrate diet. Maybe, maybe I'm an anomaly. 
you know, maybe I didn't do it right. Who knows? But the truth is that my, my insulin requirements went from 25 all the way upwards of 42 units per day on average. So 42 units of insulin per day on average is what I was at one year into my diabetes career. And then I switched over to eating a plant-based diet. 42 came all the way back down and it went down to an average of 23 units per day. So as soon as I employed this methodology, I went back down to 23 units per day. And now I'm somewhere between 25 and 28 units per day. And that's been stable for about 20 years. And the reason why there was a little bit of an increase is actually because when I was at 23 units of insulin per day, I was underweight. I literally was not eating enough calories. So I had to increase my calorie intake and that necessitated just a little bit more insulin. So now we'll say I'm between 25 and 28 units per day. And again, that's been stable for you know 18 years effectively. Where do I see this moving forward into the future? The answer is I would probably be between 25 and 28 units of insulin per day 10 years into the future. And if I'm not, then I'm either trying to gain mass, which is unlikely, or I've done something that's uh, you know, increased my insulin requirements even though that, you know, I, I'm, I'm making a mistake in my lifestyle or I'm doing something that's leading to insulin increased requirements because my pancreas makes zero insulin at this point. So there's no contribution from me anymore. It's purely from the outside world. So if my insulin requirements go up, it's because of my lifestyle. Oh, okay. Right, which is a cool. Yeah. And had you continued to follow uh, mainstream medicine, where would you likely have been instead of where you are now? That is a phenomenal question. If I had to just sort of like pure conjecture, but if I had to get, I would say that I would be using probably between 50 and 60 units of insulin per day. Call it, call it four, 45 to 60 units of insulin per day. You know, and I can guarantee you I would not be feeling well. I'd be, you know, I'd have probably a very suppressed immune system. I'd be sick all the time. Um, digestively, I would be in a world of pain. So, uh, yeah. Now, these aren't guesses because reality is you have coached many people over the years. Yes. Correct. And you hear from them and you help turn their lives around. Yep. No okay. Question. Let's get back to that um, when we wrap up. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we've developed a, a coaching program. And um, a coaching pro the, the coaching program is basically designed to help people transition to a more plant-focused diet to reduce their to, – to reverse the underlying cause of high blood glucose. And that underlying cause is this thing called insulin resistance. So insulin resistance has become like a, a, a very important topic in the world of overall health because – Insulin resistance not only influences your risk for prediabetes, type 2 diabetes, and gestational, but it also is the thing that makes your life very complicated when living with type 1 or 1.5. But it also, funny enough, is the thing that can dramatically increase your risk for many chronic diseases. Most of the chronic diseases that we experience in the world of, of health today, including things like high cholesterol, chronically high cholesterol, hypertension, which affects a ridiculous number of people, and fatty liver disease, chronic kidney disease, many types of cancers, neuropathy, which is nerve tingling, you know, fingers and toes, uh, Alzheimer's disease. 
every single one of these is positively influenced by reversing insulin resistance. So if you can reverse insulin resistance, then you're going to lower your overall chronic disease risk and who doesn't want that? So um, we teach people in our coaching program how to reverse insulin resistance. And that's the beauty is that when you do that, not only does diabetes tend to just kind of fade away into the background, but your overall chronic disease risk goes, dramatic, goes down dramatically. And as a result of that, you can, you know, you'll probably be alive on this planet for a longer period of time. And even if you're not, you're just going to be a happier camper the rest of your life, right? So, you know, coaching program is something that we've been, you know, we've probably handheld maybe 10,000 people's lives, 10,000 people's hands as they've walked through our coaching program and made some significant improvements in their overall life. And we're only, honestly, we're just getting started, just getting started. Tell me a favorite testimonial or two from that program. Okay. Favorite, one of my favorite testimonials is from... We have lots of people who come to us with uh, type 2 diabetes, okay? It's, it's probably like the most common condition in general, okay? So um, we have, I'm just trying to think of like who's the best type 2 testimonial that I can think of right now. Don Presnell, okay? Don came to us many years ago. He had type 2 diabetes plus he was, oh, no, you know what? I'm, I'm sorry. Let me go back. I'm going to go Raj. Raj. Raj was number one, obese. Uh, number two, had di diagnosed with fatty liver disease. Uh, number three, high cholesterol. Uh, and number four, type 2 diabetes. Okay, He had all four of those conditions. And he heard his son making fun of him one day. His son had a friend over. And this, they were about to go play basketball outside. And his son's friend said, hey, do you want to invite your dad? you want to invite your dad to come play with us? And his son responded by, he said, Our dad, my dad's too slow. He can't play with me anymore. Don't, don't say anything. Raj heard that and he literally like his heart sunk and he was like, my son doesn't even want to play with me anymore because I'm too slow. That feels terrible. So literally that day, Raj was like, I'm done. I'm done. Like Raj had multiple businesses. He has plenty of money in the bank and he was just like, you know what? I got to, I got to fix this because my son doesn't even want to play with me anymore. Like that's terrible. Right? So what he did, he uh, came to Mastering Diabetes and we taught him how to change his lifestyle. Within a very short period of time, okay, short period of time being approximately eight months, which is in the grand scheme of things, not that long, Raj lost 75 pounds. He reversed type 2 diabetes, okay? What I mean by that is his A1C fell by like 1.5%. He was up in the sevens, and he came down to the low sixes, which is, which is massive. He ha was also diagnosed with fatty liver disease, which is a, a tough condition to overcome. It just takes a long time. He went back to his, uh, his doctor and his doctor um, basically said, um, you had disease. I did an ultrasound. I saw the, the nodules. You no longer have fatty liver disease. How did you do that? I've never seen that before. And Raj basically explained the methodology to him. And his doctor said, wow, you are literally a unicorn. I have never <laughs> in my time seen this happened before. And Raj was obviously very ecstatic about it. He was using metformin as an oral diabetes medication, gone, no longer needs that anymore. Okay, so what we see oftentimes is that people come to us with multiple chronic diseases or multiple comorbidities. And by reversing insulin resistance, they can get rid of multiple at the same time. And I hear stories like that and it touches my heart 
not only did Raj become a healthier version of himself, but he plays with his kid all the time now. And he's like, yes. he's like, damned if my kid doesn't want to play with me anymore. Like, I'm going to show this kid how to play basketball. Right. And now <laughs> he, I mean, his life is a hundred times better. Right. Oh, that's a beautiful story. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And Cyrus, man, I'm honored to have you on my show. Um, where can people go to find out more about your coaching program? Where should they go to order your book, uh, Mastering Diabetes? What's the next best step? Awesome. Thank you for thank you for the invitation to come here today. Uh, here's what I recommend. Since you guys are listening to podcasts, you guys like podcasts, go to uh, the Apple Store. Go to uh, just type in Mastering Diabetes. We have a podcast as well, and you can learn you know a thousand things there. We also have a YouTube channel if you like watching YouTube videos, which I'm obsessed with. Uh, so you can just go to Mastering Diabetes, type that into YouTube, and you'll find us. We have a website, MasteringDiabetes.org. And we also have a book. It's called Mastery Diabetes. (laughs) Uh, Just go to Amazon and uh, type Mastery Diabetes and you'll see the book there. Um, However you absorb information, whether it's through your ears, through your eyes, whether you like to read text, we have got you covered. So you choose the best form of information into into your head and then you can choose the right platform for you. That's great. Yeah, I visited your YouTube channel earlier today. And I looked at your uh, lead video that had over a million views on it. Uh, so it's a popular channel. you got some great content. People go check it out. And um, I'm going to say get the book too, man. If you're like me and you like to carry a book around and, and chew on it a little bit, there's a lot of good content here. Really helped um, change my thinking. So it can change yours too. I love it. I love it. Thank you, my man. Cyrus. Thank you so much. And I am going to be on your show. If you're listening to this, people, check out his channel. And you're going to ask me about some things that we didn't talk about today. So we're going to have a good time. And you're doing a little experiment for me. That's right. That's right. So just to give some background here, uh, you were kind enough to send a bunch of aloe vera juice my way. And I've been drinking that aloe vera juice and I'm trying to get it every single day. And part of what I would like to determine is to whether or not the aloe vera juice actually helps uh, me lower my blood glucose or control my blood glucose with even more precision. And truth be told, that's a very hard question to answer because there's a lot of things that are present in my daily life that help with that. I don't 100% know if I'm going to come up to an answer, but I will reveal all of my secrets uh, in our episode. And I can't wait to have you on because honestly, I've been I've been sort of casually learning about aloe vera and it wasn't until I met you that I recognize that you are a true master and you have uh, a whole world of knowledge that I could benefit from. So when we have our conversation and we do our podcast together, I'm, I'm really looking forward to learning a lot more. I'm looking forward. People go check out that episode. When you're done with this one, you'll probably find it in a week or two. Your Mastering Diabetes podcast. That's exactly right. Dr. Cyrus Kambata, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Have a great day. I hope you enjoyed that episode today on the Dr. Haley Show. Make sure to hit subscribe on whichever platform you are listening to this. If this episode made you think of someone, go ahead, take a screenshot, and share this exact episode with them. You can catch the show notes for this episode on www.drhaley.com. If you want to geek out with Dr. Michael Haley on other radical health topics, be sure to check out his YouTube channel where he posts exclusive video content. All the details are at www.drhaley.com and we can't wait to hang out with you on the next episode.